This is the University Seventh-day Adventist Church in the sunny Orlando, Florida. We are glad that you are listening to our weekly podcast. Our prayer is that you will be blessed and challenged by our message today. And may God lead you in the next step of your growth in Him. Here is our future sermon. Good morning, church, or rather good afternoon. Happy Sabbath. First off, I'd like to thank my dad for that lovely introduction, and I'd like to thank some people that came to support me in the front area. I appreciate you guys coming. <laughs> now, I would ask that, I'd like to reiterate what my dad said and ask that you guys pray that God hides me and you only see him through this message. Now, if you would bow your heads and close your eyes for prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for blessing us and keeping us. Thank you for bringing us to another close of a week and to see another lovely Sabbath day. Dear Lord, please help someone to get blessed from this message. Help someone to take one thing from it, to learn more about you and to see you in a different light. Dear Lord, thank you for having us all here. Bless those that couldn't make it and help them to get something out of this Sabbath day also. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, before we begin, there are a few things I would like you all to know about me. Now, first off, I'm a slight feminist, so I love to focus on stories depicting a woman's point of view. I am also a big fan of the Old Testament, so I tend to really focus on the people and stories that make up that time period. With that being said, when I was debating on what to present today, I kept thinking about my life, especially over the past seven years, and how it parallels with the Bible. So I kept coming back to women, but not just any women, the bad girls in the Bible. The title of today's sermon is Bad Girl Gone Good. That might sound a little odd to you, but when I sit down and think about the women we typically discuss in church, I'm nothing like them. I'm no Mary. If it were so, I would be the mother of the Son of Man right now, and that's something my parents are very excited about, that I don't have a child. <laughs> now, you men may think you're going to be exempt, but there are not many men that I know would do what Joseph did and stay with their fiance after she gets pregnant, knowing good and well you did the right thing and waited before marriage and didn't sleep together. Or even worse, people will believe that you didn't sleep together, and therefore you would be subjected to hearing them talk about how your fiance cheated on you and she's carrying some other man's child, pegging you for the chump, but staying with her. Now, I'm definitely not Dorcas, a woman so kind and loved by the people of God that God allowed her to be brought back to life so she may continue to serve others. Her story can be found in Acts 36, verses 42. Now, that would never be my story. My family is quick to say I'm an elitist or basically way too stuck up for that. So, that wouldn't be my story. I'm not like Deborah either, one of the women in the Bible I admire so much. Songs have not been written about how wise and faithful I am in Judges 5. Many men could not be Deborah's husband. They would not be comfortable with their wife working in a male-dominated field. A wife who is the spiritual leader of a nation. A nation. How could he compete as the spiritual leader of the household? His wife was more powerful than him and received more respect than him. Now, I don't care how far we've come in equaling the sexes in society, but I do not know many husbands that would like to walk two steps behind their wife. 
being recognized as Mr. Deborah instead of Lepidot, his own name. Now, most of us are nothing like Esther or Ruth. We are not courageous when things get tough. We don't stand firm in our faith when the world around us is crumbling. Now, you know how they say when you're in a situation, there's a fight or flight instinct that kicks in? Well, for me personally, I fly away and panic the whole time. So I did not see myself in any of these phenomenal women, and I haven't met any men who can analyze the lives they have lived and see the characteristics of Joseph, Boaz, or even Lepidot, Deborah's husband. No, when I look at us, I see we are more like Eve, deceitful, egging people on to see what will happen, willing to test their love for us. It is regrettable these days I see more similarities in our society to Jezebel, a woman determined to get what she wants by any means possible, being satisfied with a weak partner because it allows one to have complete control over every situation. And that's what we all strive for, control. But letting them believe he is the true king as she did with her husband Ahab. I see us in Herodias, the wife of King Herod, the very man who wanted to kill Jesus because he felt threatened by Christ's power. I wonder if any of us had as much power as she did, would we have a problem beheading an enemy as she did with John the Baptist? Because she didn't like that he was condemning her sinful marriage, even though everything he was expressing was true. I know through my words, I probably already have. Some of us have lived like the woman at the well, looking for some sort of validation through a man, but yet wanting acceptance from the women in our life. When that can't be found, we end up feeling empty and lost. Now, we have all cheated God like Ananias and Sapphira in Acts 5 and given him less than promise, but not just financially, but also through the talents and gifts he has given us. Now, for most of my 21 years on this earth, I have lived like these women we deem wicked and horrible. But when I read their stories, I see parallels of my life and wonder, what makes them so wicked and me just a normal young woman trying to find her way? Is it because they are in the Bible and times were different? Do we get a free pass? Is it because we are covered by grace? Or could it be because we haven't seen someone struck down in a dramatic fashion recently? Now, I think we tend to look at our lives through rose-colored glasses, never realizing how similar we are to these characters we are so quick to call immoral. Now, men, don't think you're getting off so easily. The one common thread I noticed in all of these bad girl stories were weak, ungodly men. Men who didn't know how to be the priests of their households. Men who were afraid to lead their families toward good and away from evil. Men who were too concerned to please the women in their life instead of pleasing God, their creator. Today we are going to focus on my personal favorite bad girl in the Bible. Her story can be found in Genesis 38. She was a bad girl from birth by being born into a godless family. Tamar was a Canaanite woman given into marriage to Judah's firstborn son, Ur. Now this wasn't just a bad marriage, it was an awful marriage. Ur was an evil and abusive husband. God, however, took pity on her, and he despised Ur and his wickedness and struck him down. Now as was tradition of the time, Tamar was then given to Onan since there was no child to carry on Ur's name. 
It was Onan's responsibility to impregnate Tamar so his brother's name would not be forgotten. I say his name, not hers. Now, I can only understand this from a female perspective, but I would not appreciate being passed on from one man to the next as damaged goods. My only purpose, to sleep with my dead husband's brother and have a child so his name will live forever. Not even mine, his. Onan apparently didn't appreciate this either, so he ended up spilling his seed, or if we're being totally transparent today, he used the oldest trick in the book and pulled out. Now, God did not appreciate him defiling the marriage bed. So God struck Onan down also. Now, if we backtrack a little bit, you'll notice that Judah was in a foreign land because of all the guilt he felt from betraying his father and brother. Turn with me to Genesis 37, chap Genesis chapter 37, starting at verse 18. Say amen once you reach. They spotted him off in the distance. By the time he got to them, they had cooked up a plot to kill him. The brothers were saying, here comes that dreamer. Let's kill him and throw him into one of these old cisterns. We can say that a vicious animal ate him up. We'll see what his dreams amount to. Reuben heard the brothers talking and intervened to save him. We're not going to kill him. No murder. Go ahead and throw him in this cistern out here in the wild, but don't hurt him. Reuben planned to go back later and get him out and take him back to his father. Moving down to verse 26, Judah says, Brothers, what are we going to get out of killing our brother and concealing the evidence? Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites, but let's not kill him. He is, after all, our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. By that time, the Midianite traders were passing by. His brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 pieces of silver to the Ishmaelites, who took Joseph with them down to Egypt. Moving to verse 31. Then they took Joseph's coat, butchered a goat, and dipped the coat in blood. They took the fancy coat back to their father and said, Look, we found this. Look it over. Do you think this is your son's coat? He recognized it at once. My son's coat, a wild animal, has eaten him. Joseph torn limb from limb. Jacob tore his clothes in grief, dressed in rough burlap, and mourned his son a long, long time. His sons and daughters tried to comfort him, but he refused their comfort. I'll go to the grave mourning my son. Oh, how his father wept for him. Now going to the scripture reading from today in, in chapter 38, verses 1 through 5. About that time, Judah separated from his brothers and hooked up with a man in Adullam named Hira. While there, Judah met the daughter of a Canaanite named Shua. He married her. They went to bed. She became pregnant and had a son named Ur. She got pregnant again and had a son named Onan. She had still another son. She named this one Shelah. They were living in Kazib when she had him. Now, I know this is a familiar story for many of you, many of you but this sets up what, where Judah is in his life right now. He was hiding and running away, so he moved to a foreign land. Now notice the environment you put yourself in really affects your life. Because of Judah's profound guilt, he moved to a land that was not his, married a woman he shouldn't have, and because of this union, he produced godless sons. Another thing to notice is Judah was visiting with a good friend when he decided to stay and marry a foreigner. The friends we hang around truly influence the decisions we make. Had Judah cho chosen a wiser friend, this whole story could have 
turned out differently, and I would be preaching a completely different sermon today. At this point, Tamar is widowed not once, but twice, and she has no children to call her own. Now imagine the talk around town. Everyone must be thinking, this woman is cursed. She's killed two husbands, born no children. Now in those days, for context, children are what validated a woman. They showed how much the gods loved her by how many children she bore her husband. And notice I say gods because this woman is Canaanite and her people worshipped many gods. Children, specifically sons, provided security for a woman when she became old. Now Judah had one more son, and it was his duty to give him to Tamar. But at this point, wouldn't you be a little apprehensive to do that? I'm not a mother, but I can understand Judah's apprehension because of my little sister. Anyone who knows me well knows I'm kind of obsessed with her, and she's my world. So if she's the only one left in my immediate family, there's no way on God's earth I would give her up especially to the person I blame for the deaths of two others in my family. Now, I expect many of you here have close family members that you wouldn't want to give up either. So Judah told Tamar, go back home, and when Sheila becomes older, I'll call for you and give him to you in marriage. Now, Judah tried it in two instances. First, he sent her home. At this point in her life, she has used goods and of no value to her father. She should have remained in Judah's household. Secondly, he had no intention for sending back for her, which Tamar knew. Years passed and Tamar grew tired of living in mourning. Wouldn't you grow tired of wearing black all the time, getting increasingly annoyed at how worthless you are and everyone around you knows it and no one is ashamed to point it out to you? It seems whenever we are down, people feel the need to rub it in our face about how low we are. Tamar was tired of waiting for what was rightfully hers, so she decided to take matters into her own hands, something we all tend to do. We can never patiently wait for God to show us his plan. I'm sure she felt a lot like Jeremiah in Lamentations 1. She cries herself to sleep each night, tears soaking her pillow. No one's left among her lovers to sit and hold her hand. Her friends have all dumped her. I called to my friends, they betrayed me. My priests, my leaders only looked after themselves, trying but failing to save their own skin. Oh God, look at the trouble I'm in. My stomach in knots, my heart wrecked by a life of rebellion. Massacres in the streets, starvation in the houses. Oh, listen to my groans, no one listens, no one cares. When my enemies heard the trouble you gave me, they cheered. Bring on judgment day. Let them get what I got. Take a good look at their evil ways and give it to them. Give them what you gave me for my sins. Groaning in pain, body and soul, I've had all I can take. I imagine she felt like this day in and day out. So she listened and waited. And when she heard her father-in-law was coming into town, she came up with a plan. She took off her mourning clothes, dressed herself up as a temple prostitute, adorned herself, covered her face, and waited for Judah to pass by. Now this cracks me up because this is a woman that lived in Judah's house for years. And all she had to do was cover her face, dress seductively, and sit and wait for him, and he did not recognize her at all. I don't know if anyone here watches Duck Dynasty, but the grandfather on the show was going fishing with his grandson. 
And he was giving his grandson dating advice, and he was asking about his grandson's girlfriend. And he asked him one question, does she wear a lot of makeup? And his grandson said no. And the grandfather told him good, because the more they put on, the more they are trying to hide. And that stuck with me because that's exactly what Tamar was doing and succeeded. She was a woman lying in wait. You also notice she took off her everyday wear and adorned herself. She became too many men's fantasy by hiding who she truly was. By doing so, she became, in essence, a body for Judah to do with as he pleased. Now, some of us ladies wonder why we can never find a good Christian guy when all we're really doing is showing a fantasy and expecting them to stay around, not understanding when they realize that reality is nothing like the fantasy they will leave. While guys, on the flip side, try to act all shocked when they realize there is no substance to the woman they are with. If the only thing is she, she is presenting is her body, why would you think there is more to offer? When it came time to discuss payment, I would assume there's a set price for the services that are going to be offered. However, Tamar asked, how much are you willing to pay? Which reminds me of us. Do we know how much an afternoon of pleasure is really going to cost us? And I'm not even referring to sexual pleasure, but just the pleasures of this world. I know for a fact Judah had no idea what was about to hit him. Tamar, however, knew exactly what she wanted his staff, and seal. When I was younger, I did not understand the significance of these two items, but in those days, when a young man became of age, he would go out into the field and carve his own staff. So it was unique to him and used to recognize the field or flock he was herding. And his seal was how he would sign legal documents, much like a stamp with one's name on it. I'm sure Judah thought this was an odd request, but she's deferring payment, so why not? Later, Judah's same friend, Hira, goes back to town to give the woman the young goat he promised in exchange for her staff and seal. But she is no longer there, and no one knows who is he, he is asking about. They say no prostitute has ever lived here. We do not know to whom you are referring. Judah stops looking rather than get continually embarrassed about asking about some fathom woman. I'm sure he forgot all about the experience. Yet, three months later, word comes back to him that Tamar is pregnant. And since she belongs to his house, what would he like to do about it? I find this ironic, be, ironic because if you remember from earlier, he kicked her out of his house. Yet she belongs in his house, so he gets to decide her fate. As soon as he heard, he commanded that they drag her out of the house to be publicly burned. He waited for no explanation. I imagine he was relieved that he no longer had to deal with that cursed woman. I'm sure in his mind he was thanking God. However, she was ready when they came for, them, for her and said, Tell Judah I am pregnant by the man that owns these things. Now they took them outside and showed them to Judah. Judah sees his staff and seal, and I can imagine him having flashbacks to that day, debating if he should admit his wrong, because so far in his life he has not. What I admire most is Judah's response, because this is a woman accusing him. 
Even if the whole crowd knew those were his things, he still could have denied it and she would have died. However, he says, I am the guilty one. She did this to get back in the family. She now belongs to me. I imagine a look of shock going over the crowd as they're just silenced after being riled up to publicly burn someone. Judah took her home, never had relations with her again, and God blessed him with twin boys, allowing Judah to once again have three sons. Now Tamar was a woman with many gods. She became part of a family that was supposed to worship the one true God. However, the men in her life acted as if there was no God. She was punished for their sins. She prostituted herself to her father-in-law to get what was rightfully hers, her worth through a child. Even though she had such a stained, dirty, wrinkled resume, God blessed her to be the first woman named in the lineage of Christ. If you look at Matthew chapter 1, it said Judah had Perez and Zerah. The mother was Tamar. Kings were born from this Canaanite woman's loins. I would suggest we could all pull a 180 in our lives like Tamar. We can become, be bad but become good through Christ. We just need to invite him to walk with us daily. We need to be able to learn like Judah did that there comes a time to confess our guilt and move back home. To accept that we have sinned and fallen short. Even if we end up taking a much harder path, just as Tamar did, feeling the need to deceive to receive what is rightfully ours. Just remember that God can take anyone and lead you ultimately where he wants you to be. Some say this story happened thousands of years ago, but I say there are modern-day Tamars living among us. When I was in high school at Forest Lake Academy, I encountered one my junior year. She was a senior, and quite a few people found her a bit off-putting or even weird and annoying. But it was because people did not understand her story. They didn't know where she came from. Towards the end of the school year, she decided to tell her testimony. She told us she had previously attended another SDA academy. She met a guy, and they began to date. She began to skip classes to spend time with him and sneak out of the dorm late at night to see him. Eventually, her life came to revolve around him. She was in love. One day, he asked her, oh, can you go pick up a package for me in a building? She thought nothing of it and went to the building to pick up the package. As soon as she entered, the first thing she saw to her right, hanging from the door, was a lifeless body. Then she looked around the room, and there were guns and money everywhere. And she realized, wait a minute. My boyfriend's in a gang. Now, you would think she would leave and run away or be concerned, but she was in love. So she stayed and joined that life with him and became addicted to drugs all before the tender age of 16. She was ruining her life while living in the Seventh-day Adventist dorm room. Then one day, something hit her, and she decided to call home and get help. She broke up with her boyfriend, left school, got clean, and transferred to FLA her senior year. If you met this young lady, you would never know this was her story. Like Tamar, she was led astray by an ungodly man, but she decided that her story would not end as her being a bad girl. That would only be a short chapter in the long book, which is her life. In closing, a young woman went to her grandmother and told her about life and how things were so hard for her. 
She did not know how she was going to make it and wanted to give up, as many of us do. She was tired of fighting and struggling. It seemed that as if one problem was solved, a new one arose. Her grandmother took her to the kitchen, as grandmothers do, and she filled three pots with water and placed each on a high fire. Soon the pots came to a boil. In the first, she placed carrots. In the second, she placed eggs. In the last, she placed ground coffee beans. She let them sit and boil without saying a word. In about 20 minutes, she turned off the burners. She fished the carrots and eggs out and placed them in bowls. Then she ladled out the coffee and placed it in a mug. Turning to her granddaughter, she asked, what do you see? Her granddaughter, slightly confused, decided to amuse her grandmother and said, carrots, eggs, and coffee. She brought her closer and asked her to feel the carrots. She did and noted they were soft. She then asked her to take an egg and break it. After pulling off the shell, she observed the hard-boiled egg. Finally, she asked her to sip the coffee. The granddaughter smiled as she tasted its rich aroma. Then the granddaughter, still slightly confused, asked, what does it all mean? Her grandmother explained that each of these objects had faced the same adversity, boiling water, but each reacted differently. The carrot went in strong, hard, and unrelenting. However, after being subjected to the boiling water, it softened and became weak. The egg had been fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected its liquid interior. But after sitting through the boiling water, its insides became hardened. The ground coffee beans were unique, however. After they were in the water, they changed the water. Which are you? When adversity knocks on your door, how do you respond? Are you a carrot, an egg, or a coffee bean? Are you the carrot that seems strong with pain and adversity? Do you wilt and become soft and lose all your strength? Are you the egg that starts with a malleable heart but changes with the heat? Did you have a fluid spirit after death, a breakup, financial hardship, or any other trial? Have you become hard and stiff? Does your shell look the same on the outside, but on the inside, are you bitter and tough with a stiff spirit and a hardened heart? Or are you like the coffee bean? The bean actually changes the hot water, the very circumstance that brings the pain. When the water gets hot, it releases the fragrance and flavor of your life. If you are like the bean, when things are at their worst, you get better and change the situation around you. When the hours are the darkest and the trials are the greatest, do you elevate to another level? How do you handle adversity? Are you changed by your surroundings or do you bring life and flavor to them?